millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. The seven presidents from 1869 to 1901 had a number of things in common. Most people refer to them as the bearded presidents, although McKinley had a clean-shaved face. But each of them dealt with other things in common, and particularly economic panics. In a time when presidents had less leverage over the nation's monetary, fiscal, and trade policies... The likes of Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison, and McKinley all faced major economic recessions or depressions. Grant and Hayes faced the Panic of 1873, prompted by the collapse of Jay Cook's Northern Pacific Railroad. Garfield and Arthur had to face price depression during the 1880s, which eventually led to the Panic of 1884. Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison each had various recessions to manage, but none greater than a run on gold and the Panic of 1893, which was actually so catastrophic that recessions in 1896 and 1899 brought the shaky economy into the McKinley years. How much do these bearded and non-bearded presidents matter in this economic story? How much do they matter in the forces of industrialization or in immigration, geopolitics, and just the cyclical nature of the economy, the booms and the busts? Do they matter at all? Or do the institutions of government, say Congress, for example, or the institutions of free enterprise like private commercial businesses, which play a greater role in the economic fortunes of the United States? This question has been investigated by Mark Zachary Taylor, who's a professor at Georgia Tech. He's also a former physicist who now specializes in science and technology politics and policy, the American presidency, and comparative politics. And in his research, what he tries to do is understand the sources of national economic growth and decline. His research has been published in various journals like Foreign Affairs, Presidential Studies Quarterly, the Journal of Political Science Education. He holds a PhD in political science from MIT and a BA in physics from UC Berkeley. Not only is his curriculum vitae interesting, I think you'll find that Zach's approach to the Gilded Age, his quantitative and qualitative approach to how the presidents matter is something of interest to all of us. Welcome to the show, Zach. It's great to be here. Thank you very much, Michael. It's really good to have a political science as well as an actual scientist. Zach, your scholarship originated in physics and you've moved on to science and technology, uh, politics. And your latest book, though, is on presidents, the economy and the Gilded Age, which you call in the title, or maybe your publisher does, I don't know, Feeble Times. And But actually, it's funny because your take on the time is actually one of growth and innovation. And I'm wondering, how did you come to this topic? And what inspired you to write this book? I, I think my, my big overarching passion is sort of the competitiveness of individuals, organizations, and nations. And has that changed over time and across different countries? So for about 25 years, my research was looking at uh, competitiveness in science, technology, and innovation. And that was my uh, first book. And I was able to explain a lot of uh, things going on there. But sort of a hanging thread was the role of leadership. So uh, I began to look at the role of economic leadership. There's around uh, 2012 when Obama was running for re-election. 
and all the news channels are screaming, Obama was the best president ever. No, he was the worst. No, Wilson was the worst or Roosevelt was the best. I thought, you know, in the course of my research, I've got all this data on economic performance, growth, inflation, employment, the value of the dollar, interest rates, stock market. So I said, you know, I've got the data where you could actually do a relatively objective ranking of the economic performance of the presidents. So I, I did that. And I've got a link on my website, which is mzak, mzak.net, to that uh, publication. And I sorted them out both by presidency and by administration. And my initial read was just kind of random. It didn't have anything to do with political party or how, you know, how, whether they were business people or whether they went to school, how smart they were. You know, any of the things we tend to think of uh, with a good economic leader. So it struck me as random. But I also know that statistics show correlation. They don't show causation. If you really want to get into this stuff, you really want an explanation, you got to dig in to the historical material. So I started doing that, reading not just uh, 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 secondary uh, uh, biographies of all the presidents and histories of the various time periods, but all sorts of primary uh, material. And these correlations started coming out. You had a lot of the success stories doing a lot of the same things that the failures did not do. And the failures doing a lot of the same things that the success stories did not do. And even the two-term presidencies, you saw that same flip. You saw in the, in the economically prosperous term, presidents doing certain things that they then stopped doing in the worst economic term. So I started writing this all up, and I thought the best way to do it is to delve deep into the Gilded Age. Because the Gilded Age, the presidency is at its weakest, supposedly, and the federal government is pretty frail and small. But you've got all sorts of crazy economic and political things going on. There are financial crises, stock market booms, high-tech bubbles, terrorist attacks, pandemics, nationwide strikes, uh, third-party movements, corruption scandals galore, assassinations, all this wonderful drama, and in a lot of ways very much like today. So I thought I'd write a book that sort of gets into this material, not just from a political economic point of view, but also try and bring in all the other things that were going on. What was going on in the intellectual sphere, the cultural sphere, how, you know, labor, women, immigrants, all these other things that were going on, sort of weave it together into a story that sort of makes sense. Uh, I wanted people to finish this book and have a sense of kind of having lived through the Gilded Age, in addition to getting at these aspects of economic leadership. Wow, that is uh, so much to take in. And your book is a lot to take in as well. But even if we just think about those last 12 years, I'd love to talk to you about Bidenomics and 2024 and the comparison to 2012 and all that. And I think we will get to that. But in the meantime, you sort of piqued my interest and I hope the listeners' interest as well with um, who was a successful steward of the economy in the Gilded Age? What president, uh, and, and maybe you can talk about this, which ones were successful and which ones were unsuccessful from uh, Ulysses S. Grant all the way up to William McKinley? So- the most successful folks, and here I want to make sure I'm getting all my, my data right. So our most successful presidents were pretty certainly Hayes, McKinley, and then Harrison, about a step behind them. The least were definitely uh, Cleveland. This is just looking at the data. Cleveland, uh, Grant, and Arthur. Now, when you get into the details, it flips a little. Harrison comes out looking pretty bad, and Grant comes out looking a lot better. But Cleveland and Arthur are pretty, pretty conclusively uh, not too great, and Hayes and McKinley are pretty conclusively really strong. And Garfield, even though he's only office for a few months, gets some points in his favor. Okay, so I think that's so interesting because I think that has a real relevance, your data, which people can dive into on the website or in the book. But how do we attribute responsibility for economic success? I mean, Cleveland, for example, you know, it turns out in the data is unsuccessful, maybe more in the second term than he was in the first term. But Cleveland hands Harrison an economy that was humming along pretty relatively nicely. And then Harrison hands back to Cleveland an economy that's just about to collapse, right? The 1893 panic is going to be one of the deepest uh, depressions in American history. So and Grant left the White House in 1877 with an economy that was in ruins thanks to the collapse of Jay Cook and the, the Northern Pacific Railroad. So who gets responsibility? Is it the presidents? And then if it's the presidents, where do we draw the line to their success and their failures? Or is it the 
the sort of contextual players, the business people, the Jay Cooks of the world? Where do we assign that? I mean, responsibility is widespread. Um, and to a certain degree, it's a moral judgment, right? Who's to blame? And, you know, if you're a liberal or a conservative or you're, you know, depending upon your ideology or your morals, you might blame one or another. I'm trying to look more at, as a political scientist, sort of that causality. And the question is, could presidents do anything? Because we tend to think, you know, they get all the credit and all the blame. But when you really look at the presidency, you know, they don't make the budget. Congress does. They don't control interest rates. They don't uh, uh, control a lot of policy. That's Congress. Uh, they don't control the banking system. The presidency can basically make, they, they have rhetoric. They can make suggestions. They can try and herd the cats of Congress. But there is a relatively weak institution and was designed that way by the founding fathers because they were reacting against the kings, queens, powerful aristocracies of Europe that they were rebelling against. And it was still very much in the minds of Gilded Age Americans because uh, it was only about 100, 120 years after the revolution. And there are still very few democracies in the world. Most of the world were uh, kings, queens, emperors, dictators. So there are only a handful of democracies. So it was still a very fragile institution. And people feared that America would slip into some sort of dictatorship at, or aristocracy. So uh, the American people, and especially Congress, were very jealous of presidential power, and they didn't like giving it to the president. In fact, presidents weren't even supposed to do much public speaking. Today, we turn on the TV, we see Biden or Trump every day. You know, they're always giving speeches, making comments all over the place. Back then, presidents were supposed to, you know, mostly be seen and not heard. They would come out for ceremonial functions when they spoke to the public. They were not supposed to advocate for an agenda. They were supposed to be sort of neutral uh, uh, administrators, and Congress was supposed to be the source of policy. And the uh, when the president what did make suggestions, it was in sort of formal messages to Congress, like the annual state of the what we call the State of the Union address today. And even then, they wrote them down. They did not go in front of Congress and speak them and orate. Rather, they submitted them in writing because it was, it was considered too power, you know, attention seeking for a president to do that purpose. So the presidents were really in the background. So the question is, in this time period, did the president have any ability to shape the economic environment? So I'm not looking so much at responsibility. I'm looking at sort of causality. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to delve a little deeper into the methodology of the book, which brings that out further. But I suppose just to not push back, but to, to ask you a sort of more probing question about what presidents can do is in the party platforms and their role within the party before they become a nominee, I suppose they do have opinions on things like monetary policy, fiscal policy, and certainly in the Gilded Age, trade policy, right? Like tariffs, for example, would have been the big policy issue of the time. Perhaps we can we can specify where some of these Gilded Age presidents made their greatest contributions to those monetary, fiscal, and trade policies. Right. And, and let me, let me uh, since you asked this question, let me back out a little, give, keep people a sense of the structure of the book. Um, the book covers the Gilded Age, actually from the end of the Civil War up to the assassination of McKinley. And I give a, a chapter on each president. And I try and delve deep, not just that they're, you know, the facts of their personal history, but what were they thinking? What were the, the ideas that they were raised up in and that they themselves adopted? How did, how did their political careers go? You know, what type of uh, educational and economic training or business experience they had? What did they bring into the White House? And what were the economic conditions that they experienced and what they thought of them? And then that they encountered while president and how did they react? Who did they cooperate with? Who did they fight? How did they try and attempt to manipulate Congress or the public or win support? So I try and do all that at the same time, sprinkled in, I've got chapters on the 18, a chapter on the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, try and bring it all together, try and weave the politics, the economics, the culture, what was going on with immigrants, women, uh, African-Americans, science and technology, the intellectual community, uh, you know, how Americans themselves were thinking about the politics and the economics and show how that changed, try, try and weave it together into a causal story. So the idea is some presidents had really strong ideas about what was going on in politics and economics and what needed to be done. McKinley, definitely. So McKinley 
He grew up in uh, uh, Ohio, which then was the high tech, it was sort of the Silicon Valley of the day. So all sorts of high tech, except back then it was in manufacturing. And what he saw was waves of uh, foreign imports, often from Great Britain, that would come in and that were much cheaper and higher quality than American production, and they would wipe out American producers time and again. So he thought, the, and, and then these people, Americans, would be unemployed, and they would wind up homeless or feed into uh, labor movements or tend towards the growth-cutting socialism. And when America goes into the Civil War, we're not even building a lot of our own weapons. We have to buy them from both, on both sides from Europe. So McKinley, who's in the Civil War, uh, uh, he does very well. He's a quartermaster, does very well in the Civil War, and is on the front lines of battle. He is frequently in situations where he cannot get the material he needs to support his, his men. So he really is frustrated. He goes into Congress and he says, we need trade protectionism. Trade protectionism is going to help American industry. And when American industry is flourishing, workers are going to be employed. Socialism is going to die out. All these strikes and uh, uh, confrontations between the classes, between immigrant groups will die away. That is the key to prosperity, peace, and security. So he's very much, I want tariffs. And he's going to be, uh, his entire career is going to be about protectionism. And when he gets into office, he will do that. And he's going to come into office during the terrible Great Depression of 1893 to 1897. And the problem there is America is just not bringing in enough revenues to support its spending. And therefore, people are scared that the dollar is going to collapse, that America will not be able to pay its debts, its bonds. And so investors, foreign and domestic, flee the American market. And almost as, as once he gets elected, even before he gets inaugurated, confidence comes back in because they understand McKinley and his vision for restoring prosperity and to America and revenues into the American financial system. Uh, and he does that very well. That's sort of a quick snapshot. The opposite would be a guy like Chester Arthur. Chester Arthur grows up at the same time period, New Yorker, anti-slavery, also uh, gets involved in the Civil War on the Union side. He's also a quartermaster type of role. He's not in battle. He tends to enjoy the camaraderie and the fraternity of the war. And he understands how being the guy behind uh, the, the material the money of the war can be a very powerful thing. And he really supports the Republican Party. Almost all of these presidents are Republicans, except Cleveland. And they all see the Republican Party as sort of key to keeping America prosperous, in addition to their own political careers. So Arthur gets into the, the Republican Party and becomes one of these sort of bosses. He's a he's a, a, a money man, behind the scenes guys, steak dinners at Delmonico's, right? Howling around with the other bosses and the, and the and the party operatives. And he makes sure the money goes to the right places, gets people elected, scratches the right backs. And he's sort of that. He doesn't really have, he never runs for office until he uh, accepts the nomination for vice presidency. He never has a political platform or a policy agenda. So he accepts the vice presidency, which is given to him almost by accident. He does it against the wishes of his benefactors and uh, because it's such an honor. And how do you turn it down? And when Garfield unexpectedly dies in office and Arford is inaugurated, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to be president. In fact, he'll spend a lot of his time away from the White House and stay up in what is now called Lincoln's Cottage here in D.C., which is about three miles north of the White House. He doesn't want to get involved in policy or politics. He will restrict most of his communications to his sta uh, State of the Union addresses. Problems will prop up. There'll be a, a recession. will start and build under him. and There'll be a financial crisis. And he basically doesn't want to have a whole lot to do with it. He sticks to his old machine. He'll go back and forth to New York and try and play politics up there. But he's basically a non-president. Uh, he doesn't do a whole lot because he's got no vision of what to do. He's like a, a dog that, chased the, that, that chases the car and then didn't know what to do once he caught it and didn't really want it. Um, he was sort of exhausted by all the duties. He would show up. He would work as little as possible. Uh, and, he just, and everyone sort of abandoned him because he couldn't manage all the different factions underneath him. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So that's so interesting. Uh, and I think also, I, I want to come back to this question of the Civil War, but before I do, I want to get to your point about vision. So Arthur doesn't have a vision. McKinley certainly does from at least 1890 when he becomes the, the lead the, you know, signatory to the, the McKinley tariffs. Uh, but also there, there's presidents like Cleveland who don't wind up being uh, the best on the economy or at least as successful as the likes of McKinley, but do have a real ideological and vision for, uh, for the nation. I mean, you could call Cleveland probably quasi-Cobdenite, um, how do, does someone like him have the ideological convictions and have the sort of um, intellectual, he's also a workhorse as well. I mean, Cleveland works really hard. How does that not equal success in the economic uh, field? Right. So yeah, you're, you're definitely right. Cleveland is considered one of the hardest working presidents in, in the history of the office. He took it very seriously. Um, and so, yeah, having a vision going into the a vision of where you want to take the country is important. And I did not believe that. I thought going into this research, I thought the vision thing was just sort of nonsense, that a good president is sort of like a good engineer, that he walks the decks of the ship of state. And when problems pop up, he fixes them. Right. And that was my that is sort of as a scientist. That's what I expected. But what I found is that presidents without a vision of where the country take the country sort of flounder like Arthur. What also surprises me is you need to have a vision of, uh, of a proactive vision that you believe that the federal government has a job to do in uh, creating a, a competitive, prosperous economy, and that the president has a job to do in managing that. And this applies to presidents left and right, conservative and liberal. Reagan had a vision for the country and a vision for what government and the president could do uh, to implement that. It meant a lot of tax cuts and deregulation, but he was still a visionary guy despite being a conservative. So it's not a liberal conservative thing. So Cleveland comes into office at the center of the Gilded Age when you've got all these corruption scandals and all this money going back and forth between politicians and parties and party operatives and the political machines. And he says, look, the more government you have, the more opportunities you have for corruption. And it's all this corruption that's causing these financial crises. Every five to 10 years, there was another financial crisis. And at the time, they called it panics. And they were, they, they ranged in severity, but they were always pretty devastating. And a lot, because there was no welfare state, there was no unemployment, there was no health care to fall back on. So it really wiped out individuals, families, businesses, and there was no safety net. 
And this was devastating. And Cleveland thought, if we could just get government back to its sort of strict constitutional lawyer-like uh, performance, then we'll end the corruption and we'll end these financial panics and everything will be fine. So he comes in saying, I'm going to have a, a strictly constitutional presidency and a strictly constitutional government, which means I'm not going to try and pressure Congress. I'm not going to have a much of a policy agenda. And we're all going to try and play by the rules and eliminate or cut back on as much corruption as possible. The problem is when these crises hit, presidents, leaders need to take action because crises tend to overwhelm the system like these financial crises. And uh, Cleveland actually does a good job. The one thing that he also believes in is that a do the dollar needs to be respected. American debt needs to be paid back in, in, in dollars worth the same as they were lent. And that meant gold at the time. So he was diehard gold standard. So anytime there was doubt in the dollar, the gold standard, he would take action to address those crises. And that pops up at the end of the Arthur administration, when he got the panic of 1884, and one of the big uh, 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 banks, uh, trust fails, one associated with Grant, Grant's son fails, and it causes a financial panic in New York. It starts to drag down the economy. Uh, uh, this is during the 1880, headed into the 1884 election, and the economies begin to crumble. And before he's even taken office, he, published, he writes a letter that has published saying, basically, I will defend the gold standard and the dollar. And that is enough for investors and bankers to take heart, and that sort of ends that crisis. And once he gets into office, he takes actions to substantiate that. But as soon as the immediate crisis is over, he pulls back. He says, there are people in Congress and the country who want to follow up and say, hey, look, we need to further establish the gold, with more, the gold standard with more legislation. We need to bring in uh, revenues with the right amount of tariffs and taxes. And Cleveland says, no, 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 that's Congress's job, which is a real shame. Because he had the political support, he had the uh, momentum of a new presidency, so it really could have solved the problem. And that's going to come back to bite him in the second administration, when all these problems uh, are come on top of one another in the Panic of 1893. So it'll inherit a, a financial crisis that sort of begins under Harrison. And once again, Cleveland will say, okay, I'm going to defend the dollar. But he doesn't defend the financial, the, the revenue financial system to keep the U.S. going. And there, I, I've talked too much there, so let me stop seeing that. Well, no, but I think you've gotten to the point that I was trying to ask you about with the monetary and fiscal policies. But the, to me, the trade policy, Cleveland's, especially the free trade policy that he's got, is the one that distinguishes his administration from the likes of Harrison and from McKinley. And I don't know if you want to say a little bit about the trade policy, because to me, that is the singularly most important and most boring issue of the Gilded Age. I mean, no one wants to talk about tariffs, but tariffs are quite possibly the most consequential issue for these presidents. There definitely are, um, because at the time, tariffs are the tariffs are the main source, one of the main sources of revenues coming into the United States. So they didn't have much in the way of income taxes or corporate taxes or other federal uh, taxes. They did do land sales. So tariffs and taxes on tobacco and alcohol were the basic forms of revenue. Um, so tariffs, uh, you know, people don't care a whole lot about them under Grant, Hayes, Garfield. But as all sort of the Civil War issues fade away and we get back onto the gold standard under Hayes, the Republican Party is looking for new issues to attract people, attract, keep voters. And that's going to become uh, tariffs. And again, Cleveland thinks that the more the government is doing, the more opportunity there is for corruption. Tariffs get collected at the nation's ports, and a lot of the political machines who are in charge of the customs stations, you know, they basically steal a lot of that money. And, they, and even the tariff collectors get legally, I say that in air quotes, paid a portion of these tariffs. So tremendous source of graft and corruption. And Cleveland's like, hey, if we lower tariffs, that's left graft and corruption, so left op less opportunity for all this nonsense. So he tends to want to lower tariffs. He also realizes, going into 1884, he says, he thinks to himself that, ha, this is, could be an election. I know I'm going into a post-election. This could be the thing that wins it for me. So without consulting a whole lot of people, he launches in 1884, uh, at the end of 83, beginning of 84, into 
this big, great, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I should say, I, I got my dates wrong. 1880, um, he's 1885 to 1889. So in 1888, he launches into a great tariff debate and it gets the whole nation into this whole, it dominates Congress, dominates the headlines about raising and lowering tariffs, and it winds up being a clutch. He, I think he gets a minor tariff bill that doesn't do a whole lot, and he winds up losing that election. And when he gets back into office, when the uh, finance, country's finances are falling apart, he'll sort of defend the dollar and keep the dollar on the gold standard, but he won't raise tariffs that will bring in the federal revenues necessary to keep America solvent. So during 1893, because America is not bringing in the tax revenues to keep its budgets balanced and itself able to pay its debts, it goes back in near financial crisis again and again and again and again. And each time, Cleveland goes to the New York bankers. So to the people, it looks like he is defending the dollar and, and getting loans to America from these bankers, and they're making interest off of it. So it looks like he's really caved in to the plutocrats, to the wealthy class. Uh, when he really, he is just stuck on this idea of smaller government, less corruption, and I have my constitutional role, and I'm only going to do that. So he really, when he had, so to make it simple, Cleveland has a vision. And when it comes to the gold standard, he's proactive. When it comes to tariffs and trade, he is, nope, not my problem, not dealing with it. So that's interesting, because I think like there's only so many levers that presidents have to affect the economy. And that's the same today. And I think we're going to have to get into a talk at some stage about deflation and inflation, because it seems to me that that's what the presidents are really trying to do. They're trying to create levers of action that are going to either, well, largely, hopefully deflate the economy at times and then inflate it at other times. But um, I wanted to go back to the... And, and wait, great. Can, can I stop right there? Because it's a great point. So the U.S. comes out of the Civil War with a really badly inflated dollar. They just printed them like crazy. So the dollar lost something like 75% of its value during the Civil War. So afterwards, you've got two choices. You can grow the economy or you can deflate the dollar. And they de facto try and do you know, one, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And the problem is when you deflate the, the dollar or you refuse to let it inflate, you throw a country into recession. And this is what Grant does. Uh, this is what Cleveland does. So every time they hold the line against inflation, they inadvertently throw the country into these panics. Or when they refuse to respond to the panic, they say, hey, I'm not going to plate the dollar. These days, the Federal Reserve knows that when the country gets into a financial crisis, you print money like crazy. And then you worry about it afterwards to keep yourself out of crisis. Because there's nothing, inflation is bad, but deflation is worse. When you get trapped in a deflationary spiral, it's very, very hard to get out. So, you know, the sheet is always too short for the bed, but you'd rather be a little bit on the inflationary side than at all on the deflationary side, which is why the Federal Reserve today targets 2 3% inflation. They'd rather have a little inflation, and they don't want deflation. Well, look, since you've gone there, and you've already answered my question, which was basically, why is the Civil War so important? And you put it in one sentence, the Civil War you know, the greenbacks, you know, and, uh, you know, inflation was was runaway. But one of the things I'm most interested in, and, and this is for pretty obvious reasons, because it relates to today, is the relationship between presidential policy and inflation. And, you know, obviously, we've just gone through one of the biggest rounds or biggest years for inflation in probably the last 50 years. We've seen like unprecedented inflation. Paul Krugman recently wrote about Biden and the growing possibility of deflation, which, of course, comes at a time when most Americans wouldn't believe that deflation could be on the horizon. I'm not sure I believe it either, but deflation is a consequence of a number of things. And in our own lifetime, it's been a consequence of automation, technology, immigration, certainly the, the growth of outsourcing, particularly in places like China and India, and also then just cyclical economics. But back in the Gilded Age, when it was probably at its worst, the antidote for it was, well, there was lots of them. There was lots of ideas that, that could deflate the economy or, or reinflate it. And that was Georgism in a land tax, Bryanism in the silver platform, and the Greenback Party, which wanted to keep the, you know, the old Greenbacks from the Civil War. 
why do you think we haven't seen experimental politics like that, like that we've seen back in the Gilded Age today in the 21st century? Or maybe your answer is we have seen experimental politics like that today. But I'd love to hear your take to bring your knowledge of this, the you know, the economics of the Gilded Age, bring it up to date with us today in the 21st century. How does it compare? So um, we have seen experimental ideas uh, floated. I mean, they're always out there. Uh, in the economic journals, in the political platforms, third-party movements, that sort of thing. And they flourished, definitely flourished in the uh, Gilded Age because you had so many of these financial crises hitting all the time. So a good shorthand for thinking about inflation and deflation, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Too much money chasing too few goods. And because you've got more and more money, it becomes worth less and less and less because you got all these slips of paper that are essentially IOUs. And hey, as long as I've got them, I'll spend them because I really want the goods. I want the goods and services. These slips of paper don't do me a whole lot of good. So inflation ultimately comes back there to the supply of money. If you've got too much money chasing too few goods, then that means someone somewhere is printing too much money. And during the Gilded Age, that was essentially the Treasury Department, right? They controlled the money supply. So that meant the president, de facto, through his treasury secretary, could control the amount of money. And the ideology at the time that almost, I think, all of these presidents adhere to was the dollar must remain respected and reliable. People must trust that when they, they lend to America, buy our debt, that they can get the same gold out that they put in, the same value out that they put in. So we are going to make sure that that dollar goes back to the original value and stays there. Flash, the opposite is deflation, right? That is too few dollars chasing all sorts of goods. In this case, dollars become more and more valuable because you have so few dollars that uh, uh, people are lowering their prices in order to get more and more dollars. So in a deflationary environment, people will tend to hoard their dollars. Right, because that dollar is getting more and more expensive over time, and that's not good. You want people spending money, not hoarding slips of paper. Uh, also, in a deflationary uh, environment, this is recessionary, right? Because people aren't spending money. There's not as much money going around. Not as many economic transactions can occur. The economy is going to shrink. So people, uh, businesses are going to shut down. People are going to be going to throw out of work, and if they're thrown out of work, they're going to hoard their money. So in the deflationary environment, the policy response that we now agree upon is to print more money, to put flush money, flush liquidity into the economy so that people don't get scared into the dollar. And this is the great realization of Keynes and other economists during the 1930s and the Great Depression of that era, was that we need to spend, government needs to, when, when, when uh, that's the monetary response. The, uh, the Keynes, Keynesian response is fiscal policy, that when demand on the, the, the private side shrinks, then that you need to grow it and spend money on the public side. But that is sort of our experience with world, with um, uh, 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 mid-20th century is that monetary policy matters and it's very, very powerful. Gilded Age thought it mattered mostly in the form of credit, uh, but they didn't understand how all-powerful it was. So presidents today, actually, and, and that, sorry, another difference. Gilded Age, Treasury controls the money supply we handed that over to the Federal Reserve over the years. It was designed after all these financial crises hitting again and again and again. Finally, there's a big one under Teddy Roosevelt, 1908. And, and Wall Street steps in to save it. And the big bankers and some of the politicians say, this is not how you run a country, an economy. So they, they designed the Federal Reserve, which comes into existence in 1914. And the idea of the Federal Reserve is to step in when these financial crises hit so we don't have to rely on, a, on politics or the private sector. And Wilson and other presidents will influence powerfully the Federal Reserve up until around Carter. President Carter is going to appoint Paul Volcker and say, you're in charge of the money supply of the Federal Reserve, and I'm going to respect what you do. And after that, monetary policy becomes king in America, and the federal policy controls that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a great summary. I think Volcker obviously is a great moment too, because of course he puts the interest rates through the roof in order to kill the, uh, the the runaway inflation. For me though, one of your things that I love most about your book is that you make a direct comparison between the Gilded Age 
of the late 19th century to what many people call the Gilded Age of today. And you make a great number of comparisons in your introduction to say, you know, Bill Gates and, and Jay Gould, or, you know, that there's, that there's um, anecdotal evidence, but there's also hard evidence from the economic data that the, these two periods are, are comparable. And for me, one of the things that I was wondering about is forget the monetary policy, the conditions of the two periods seem really remarkably similar. And I mean, for, for that, the technology of the Gilded Age, which is the advent of the railroad and the telegraph and, uh, and the, the, the new marketplace that those things create, and the advent of the internet in the 21st century and the new marketplace that that creates. And we might, have, we might even add AI to that in recent days. But I think we can also add to those conditions Chinese overproduction in the late 20th and early 21st century. That is a deflationary pressure that the Federal Reserve can do nothing about. And are there any comparable foreign issues that are happening in the Gilded Age that create deflationary and inflationary environment or you know, either or? So I would say that uh, just to, that, that the the Chinese production creates a deflationary pressure that helps the Federal Reserve, right? It allows them to have easier money policy, and the American economy grows and grows and grows, and we can get into enormous amounts of debt, but still survive and still prosper. So Gilded Age. Um, so similar things are going on. So in the background of all, again, trying to make things simple, if we're looking at fundamental forces that are driving things in both eras, it's technological change and globalization. And they, inter they interact with one another. So before the Civil War, before the Gilded Age, the American economy is very fractured and very local. You don't have many large businesses, like a big business back then might employ a dozen people. Most Americans are in agriculture, or some sort of transportation of agriculture, and you're producing for maybe the local market, people within 50 miles or so. If you can get your product to an ocean port or a river port, then you can start selling it to other markets. But the vast majority of Americans are small farmers, small business people who are not competing one another. Along come the railroads that begin to knit all these fragmented economies into a single market. All of a sudden, producers and workers in the outskirts of, I don't know, Philadelphia have to compete with those in the outskirts of, say, Chicago. And then these transcontinental uh, shipping lines uh, bring these comp competition into the global markets. So now enormous pressure to compete. So all the less efficient, more costly producers, the small producers, start getting gobbled up by the bigger ones. So you get economies of scale, economies of scope. And bigness feeds upon bigness. So, and, this, and then you get these financial crises who wipe out the smaller, weaker producers who then get gobbled up by the bigger ones. So you get the robber barons and the, the, the big famous names, the industrialists of the Gilded Age, who are sort of on top of this. And they're ruthless. And they um, wipe out small independent producers, create these big corporate uh, monopolies. And they take what used to be local economics and local politics become national economics, and therefore national politics. And the presidents of this period are trying to navigate this because as all the economics are going, are going national, so are the politics, so the parties need to be, right? Presidents early on kind of have to keep their mouth shut and because they have to worry about all those little local parties and their preferences. If they say the wrong thing, they're going to piss off some party somewhere, right? And they also have to deal out patronage. You know, the, the federal government has all these jobs that the, that the president personally gives out. Basically, the, the local parties and the, uh, come to him through the senators saying, hey, give a job to this person, not that person over here, not there. And the president basically has to rubber stamp these things. And the, this, these patronage are the one lever of power. But as the economy goes national, these local politicians lose their power, the local political machines lose their power, and the president gets a, 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 a lever to get in there and exert national. The guy that gets stuck in the middle of this is Garfield, right? Garfield comes in trying to run a national campaign, trying to run a national party, and the New York political machine and a handful of other machines say, no, 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 you're going to do what we say because we control the power in New York or in this state or in that state. And Garfield's trying to adjudicate between them, 
and the very charismatic, stubborn, ambitious, hubris uh, uh, senator from New York says, no, I'm going to say what goes here. So they have a confrontation. And during this political confrontation over who's going to control political appointments, this mentally ill, uh, politically minded assassin steps in and kills Garfield, saying, I'm doing this for the machine, and assassinates Garfield at the Union Station Railway here in Washington, D.C., where I am. Um, so he gets he's the victim of this. But that death is going to bring to the nation attention that, hey, this has gotten really bad. So legislation is going to start coming through, limiting the degree that you can use these patronage gifts, these appointments to reward partisans, and they're going to start to professionalize the bureaucracy, which is what you need if you want to run a modern economy. You need a professional qualified bureaucracy. And I've been babbling, so let me, let me get a word and ask why. You can always raise a hand and flag me if I'm going on too long. Well, I, I suppose I, I'm letting you go because I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in how you frame it. The book frames the argument as these presidents are consequential, they matter. And in the same breath, I hear you saying, well, also there's these big forces that are kind of out of everyone's control as well. And so maybe as a question about um, your, your, your conclusions here is that where do we kind of find the degrees of where a president matters most? And that's why I'm asking about monetary, fiscal, trade policies is that it seems like it's actually very different for where presidents matter. Like some presidents are really adept at using trade policy, like McKinley in Cleveland. Others are better at using fiscal policy or monetary policy uh, to, to, to get their, you know, to get their ends met. But ultimately, it does seem like, even in what you're saying, that the forces are so powerful and so beyond the control of just any one person or even any one institution. How can we give the presidents credit? Right. And, and for those listeners who are hearing monetary policy, trade policy, fiscal policy, I'm falling asleep I don't, or I don't get this stuff. I go in the book, I try and make it very accessible and try and go not just lay out, you know, here's what the Treasury does, et cetera. I try and give you cause and effect and concepts, a way to think about it, how they thought about it. And I should add that you absolutely do achieve that in the book. It's very reader friendly. You know, these issues, I may have heard about them 100 times, but I think if you're coming to it for the first time, you're going to understand it really easily. In fact, it's in language that I think you could find in the Financial Times today. Excellent. And that's, I try to, I love The Economist magazine. I try and write the style of The Economist. So I'm definitely glad that came through. Because monetary policy, most people don't really get it. And it's so powerful. So that's definitely one of the key unappreciated tools uh, for presidency, presidents in the Gilded Age. And to a certain degree in all areas. Um, fiscal policy, trade policy, a lot of this sits in Congress. So the question there is, how could the president influence Congress to implement legislation that will help their vision for their country? And this is where political skill and uh, willingness to play politics. We already talked about Arthur. He didn't have a vision, and he had political skill at the local level. But at the national level, he just didn't have that skill. He didn't want to do it. He really shrank from the politics that he was so good at as a state boss. Once they get into office as uh, president, it all seems to slip away from him. By the way, flash forward, what is it, 50 years to Hoover, same sort of story with Hoover. He was a great politician until he gets into uh, the presidency, and it's almost a different person when he's in the presidency. Uh, and so the star of that is probably McKinley. McKinley was great at the politics. He was great at personal relationships, at party relations. And he understood the change. He, he and his advisors understood the changing political environment, how things had gone national. And he was able to create a national political machine, a national political party with himself at the head. And he did this by reaching out to try and assist, aid, influence elections at the state and local level, to try and interact with uh, politicians in state legislatures, to sort of run. Uh, 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 test uh, proclamations or legislation or uh, support votes through state legislatures so that the Congress would see what was going on in the home states and see that their states were jumping on board the McKinley train and they would therefore do it. So he became highly influential. In fact, commentators of the day, uh, by the time McKinley was running for a second term, 
said, look, McKinley has taken power like no president <clears throat> since possibly uh, 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 Washington or Lincoln during wartime. And he did this very much undercover. He was not going out there. He was not a very charismatic public speaker, although he did speak publicly more than most presidents. He did it through a lot of personal relationships. He did it through a lot of uh, uh, trade, sweet talking, uh, coercion where it was necessary. He was really good at the politics. And he was a wonderful vice president who everyone's uh, forgotten about. A uh, guy named, I'm going to blank on his name now that you're talking to me, Hobart. Uh, Hobart, and, yeah. And he's amazing. If you if if you imagine McKinley is kind of grandfatherly, he's sort of a Reagan type, sort of a I, I picture sort of a, almost a Santa Claus guy, guy uh, very you know nice, easy to talk to, uh, very wise, very reassuring. Hobart is kind of a Bill Clinton type of guy. He's he he throws the cocktail parties. He's he plays cards. He's sort of the schmoozer. And together they form this great team that sweet talks. Congress and all of uh, D.C., and they're just a great team when it comes to getting Congress to help implement the McKinley vision. Well, that's interesting, too, because, of course, when Hobart dies, he uh, picks Theodore Roosevelt, who's a very unlikely character. He's very different from McKinley. So maybe maybe McKinley, that's a great, I mean, one of the questions that I had about this book was, how does the, the political coalitions, how do they change and evolve as the economy changes and evolves, because, and you just told us about McKinley there, but what about, for example, like the earlier Gilded Age and Grant and uh, Grant and Harrison, and how do those Republican presidencies, how do the political dynamics within the parties change as the economy kind of hits highs and lows? Definitely as, so American industry is still pretty fledgling up until the panic of 1873. And that panic is going to set off a recession that's going to last till around 1878. But that panic is going to change a lot of stuff. It's going to wipe out a lot of the smaller uh, manufacturers, railroads, and allow some of the bigger conglomerates and the early industrial titans to take over. And as you get these economies of scales and big railroads and big manufacturing, you're going to get this industrial labor force. And they're always going to want, like every labor group, higher wages, shorter working hours, and they're going to begin to organize, and you're going to see the beginnings of our first uh, uh, unions. And they're going to try and get involved in monetary policy, trade policy, immigration. You're going to see these big strikes. Uh, and they're going to start worrying about Im- immigrant policy because America is going to start immigrating labor in massive amounts. And this is going to create this, this sort of chaos of political movements that the parties are not going to do well at taking advantage because the Republican Party is still thinking about the Civil War. And the Democrat Party is, especially in the South, is still thinking about the Civil War. So the Republican Party in the South is all about defending states' rights that they can and, and protecting what's left of their traditional way of life and ending Reconstruction and then hiding themselves, segregating themselves off from the rest of, politically from the rest of the uh, country. Whereas the Republican Party begins to embrace the modern economy. And again, the president affects things. So Harrison, the reason Harrison is such a is such a failure is he fights the Civil War. He believes in the Republican Party. He believes in progress, in tariffs, industry, all these things that we associate with a modern economy. But he's terrified that the Democrats are going to take over and put a stop to all of this. He sees the Democrats as the party of the South, that they are going to win through peace what they lost through the war. So rather than support any consistent ideology or policy platform, Harrison is just going to be a raw partisan. Whatever it takes to win elections for the Republican Party, he's going to do. So he's going to wind up supporting trade policy, uh, fiscal policy, whatever it is that wins votes. So that's going to create a, a mix of gold, silver, tariffs, spending that's going to kind of, not, I guess, not bankrupt the country, but send our finances terribly out of whack, where it looks like we cannot bring in enough money to start paying our, to keep paying our debts and what we owe and support the dollar. And when he leaves office, the the dominoes are already falling that are going to set off the crisis of uh, the Panic of 1893, which is what Cleveland inherits. So, well, no, I mean, I think you've 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 kind of nailed that too. I mean, the the growth of unions is a is a really important one. The growth of immigration. And then you've got those four elections in a row where the Republicans don't win the popular vote. That's from 1876 
then there's, of course, Hayes wins largely illegitimately. Harrison also doesn't win the popular vote. Cleveland carries those three elections, the popular vote. So there, there is like a, a change there in the political landscape through the economic ups and downs of the 1870s and 80s. And I think that's just really interesting. I have a, a really simple question that I, I hope that you can answer because uh, I'm not an economic historian and I've seen some of the data and I just wonder, can we trust it? I mean, the economic data, for example, even of the 21st century, there's lots of talk about how we include rents, for example, in our, in our, in our reading of inflation data today. But how much can we trust the 19th century economic data? I'm a political scientist. I would love to be an economic historian, but I, I, I am neither. So I sort of, uh, I play one on TV to a certain degree. Um, but I think if you asked an economic historian, they would agree with your skepticism. Uh, so I say in, in the book uh, and to you that you want to take a lot of this data with a, a grain of salt, perhaps a mine of salt. There are a lot of excellent economic historians who have provided estimates of things like economic growth, inflation, unemployment's really rough. We don't get good unemployment data until the mid 20th century. Um, and modern economic data uh, cataloging really begins in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s. Um, during, during the Gilded Age of before, we have uh, federal records on things like trade. Uh, there are decent records on banking. We've been able to reconstruct a decent amount of stock indices, although the stock markets were very different than they are today. Uh, what we call the stock markets today, back then, it might be a mix of stocks and bonds, and they were often dominated by just very few industries or sectors, but that's a different uh, conversation. So yeah, you definitely want to be skeptical of, of the data. And I think qualitative data, getting into the letters, the diaries, the stories of humans, what they were going through, is a great adjunct to a lot of the, the, the statistical data that people try and use. So, Zach, am I hearing that you're, you're a convert to the, the historical archives, that you're, uh, you're ready to give up the quantitative uh, data? and you're... I, I didn't say that. <laughs> all of it matters. It's all part, it's all part of the story. The more data, from a more, the more different kinds of data, from the more different directions, the better. No, I agree. I agree entirely with you. And I think your book is is really uh, refreshing. I have a, another short question for you, really. How do you think the history of the Gilded Age economy can help us approach our contemporary situation and the, and the sort of modern recessions and depressions? The role of technology and globalization is important in the same way that the individual fragmented local economies were woven together by the railroad and telegraph and creating this national economy and the competitive forces and the way that worked into the politics and new divisions in the American political system and what that did to political party power, the same thing is going on at the global level. So in the last 50 years, the you know airplanes, uh, uh, modern container shipping, communication systems, these are, and computing obviously, are weaving together national economies into a global system. And that puts pressure on different regions, cultural groups, ethnic groups. Uh, I mean, the 9-11 attacks were in a part response to globalization. Uh, people argue that the Trump MAGA movement is a response to globalization. And because we, the Trump movement isn't just an American thing. We see Trump-like movements in different countries around different leaders, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Orban over in Europe. We see these different, net, yeah, you can make these different analogies. So we, we can look, you know, history doesn't rhyme, it doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So we can look to the Gilded Age for analogies to get a sense of what went on there and what types of crises and trade-offs happen then that might happen today and what solutions may or may not have worked then that may or may not work today that's a great answer i love it um i also it leads me to the next question which is really forecasting i mean and that's not something that i'm going to ask you to do but given that you talked about you know at the outset that one of the inspirations for the book was watching uh, obama and romney talk about economy uh, you know the economics of 2012 we're now in another presidential election year. 
do you have any advice for the candidates how to pitch you know or how to forecast for the future what are your what what's your advice what can a president do to fix the economy and actually i'm not saying that the economy is broken i think this has been a remarkable economy that has gone through i mean we haven't had a recess, recession since 2008 it's almost been you know unparalleled growth unemployment is at like what 3.8% at the moment and uh, and we're still seeing growth despite interest rates having jumped 500 basis points in the space of a year. So it's a remarkable moment that we're in. And yet Joe Biden seems to be getting a lot of flack, particularly on the economy. Uh, how do you advise Trump and Biden for 2024? So I, I don't know about running a campaign because there's a lot uh, that's going on there. Um, and I do think we've got a problem in our democracy in that we tend to elect people at all levels on their ability to campaign, not on their ability to govern. So American politics has sort of devolved its reality television. And you would never hire a doctor that way, right? Why would you hire your economic and political leader that way? So we need a way to find a way to reconnect uh, the consumer choice, the voter choice, to provoke, to incentivize us to choose on the ability to govern, not on the ability to campaign. That being said, I would say whoever runs, once they get in office, they need to be able to have a relatively clear and compelling vision of where they want to take the country. They must have a proactive sense of what the government can and can can and cannot do, should and should not do, and the president's role in that. Um, they have to be they have to be willing and able to play politics. Looking back, I think this was Obama's Achilles heel. He was, a, he was a solid campaigner. He was a thoughtful policymaker. But I got the sense that he didn't like playing politics. His idea was, look, there are problems with our thoughtful solutions. And if we disagree, we get in the room and compromise. And he didn't like playing the, the games of politics in the way that Biden is pretty good at, in the way that uh, uh, Linda B. Johnson, Bill Clinton, uh, we're pretty good at Reagan. What Reagan used to say, if I can get 80% of what I want, I'll trade away the other 20%. He was good. He played, make the deals. And sometimes the deals get kind of ugly. And I think Obama just found that kind of re represent, reprehensible and beneath him. So he wasn't able to get uh, some of the stuff done that he may have wanted to get done. Biden's the other way around. He spent a lot of time in the Senate. He knows how Congress works. He's willing to make those deals to to make the offers to coerce, to cajole, to flatter, to insult, whatever it is. And he's been able to get a lot done in a very conflicted Congress. In the same way, Trump was not. Trump also was not into playing politics. Uh, he, was, he was pretty good at the rhetoric to a certain degree. The crowd to who the rhetoric appealed to really got Trump and really liked what they heard. But when it gets to the policy, a lot of the stuff that Trump campaigned on, he wasn't able to do. He didn't rip up, you know, he ripped up NAFTA and then he rewrote it in pretty much the same form again. All the judges that he got appointed appointed came right out of the Federalist Society. All, a lot of the policy passed under the Trump era was dyed in the wool mainstream Republican Party stuff. And if you go back to his campaign promises, the stuff that differed, none of it got, little of it got done. Either Congress ignored him or his own staff ignored him. So you got, and maybe that'll change if Trump gets back into office. Because now he's been there, right? So maybe he'll understand how the levers work and what he needs to do and how politics work. Now, more respect for it. We'll see. Chester A. Arthur is Donald Trump. William McKinley is Joe Biden. This is not the Gilded Age with the booms and busts, however. It's been pretty stable. Yet what's interesting to me is that we've got, I think, some pretty radical ideas that are going around. As radical as, say, the Silver Platform, the Greenbacks. And I'm thinking of St Stephanie Kelton's book, the deficit myth and modern monetary theory. We've also got a revival of Georgism. So in a lot of ways, I, I really like the, the point that you make, which is of course, Mark Twain's famous quote, history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. I think there is a bit of that at play here. And if anyone else feels a similar way, I think you need to go out and buy Zach's book. So there's the plug. Thanks for joining us on the show, Zach. Sure thing, this is fantastic. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter 
or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.